as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. You may be seated. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. We will actually start in Genesis. We're going to look in Genesis. We'll get back to uh, 1, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 in a moment. But let's flip over to Genesis uh, chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 uh, this morning. You may be wondering, why is there a tree up here, not a Christmas tree? Or what is there a tree up here to begin with at all? And so this tree will be our focal point of the morning. Uh, it's not alive, but it, it's kind of a pretty tree. Uh, but this will be our focal point this morning. Let's read God's Word. I, I want to ask this question before I begin the morning as a way to stir our hearts and our minds to what God would have for us. The question I want us all to be able to answer this morning when we leave this place is, how do we live between the trees? So if you're taking notes, that's the question we're going to get to at the very end of the sermon. How do we live between the trees? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, this is the creation story. At the end of the creation story, it says this, Then God, the Lord God, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. And then it says, And out of the ground the man, the Lord God, made to spring up every tree. That is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him where? In the garden where? With the tree to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded him and says, You will surely die. You will, you will surely eat every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For it is that on that day that you eat it, you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And he made his helper and put her there. And so here at the very start of creation, if you have read chapter 1, chapter 1 is the creation story. And so here God, six days makes and creates, makes and creates. And after everything, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then his last culminating of all creation is you and I and God what does God do he breathes life into us and places us in the garden with the tree let's turn over to Revelation chapter 22 you may be thinking this morning how are we ever going to get to first Peter chapter 2 I, I promise we'll get there we've got to cover the rest of the Bible first that was a joke we promised there's food down waiting for us I'm not going to go through all 66 uh, books of the Bible. And so here, Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Word of God. So we have the second chapter of the Word of God. We have the last chapter of the Word of God. And this is what it says. If you know about Revelation, it's where the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, God has brought him into uh, heaven in the Spirit. And he's observing all that God is and what God does in all of creation, uh, before creation and after creation. And this is what he sees in the very last chapter in verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me, John, the river of the water of life, 
bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, Jesus, uh, through the middle of the street of the city. This is where God has made the promise that God is going to restore all of creation. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We looked at the first heaven and the first earth in chapter 2 of Genesis. Now we're looking at the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 22 of Revelation. And he says, in the midst of the street of the city also on either side of the river was what? The tree of life. And with it, the twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were a healing to the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and the servants will worship Him. And so here we see, at the very end of the Bible, we see what? That same tree of life. We see it in chapter 2 in Genesis that there's this tree of life. We see it in Revelation 22. And so this morning for us, if God has said to us, hey, at the beginning everything was perfect, right? And then what happens? Sin enters in chapter 3. And sin shatters peace. The peace of God is destroyed by the sin of man. And then the rest of the story of the Bible, every other word uttered after Genesis chapter 3 is all about what? One word, restoration or redemption. It's how God is going to redeem us from the sin of Adam and Eve. And then he shows us in chapter 22 of Revelation, this is what ultimate redemption looks like. There will be total restoration of all things. The things that we destroy in our sin will ultimately be redeemed when Christ comes and calls us to himself when we enter into heaven. And so the question we have to ask then, how do we live between the trees this morning? If at at creation everything was shattered with sin and God's going to restore it all, then what is our part in the middle? If on the very first page of Scripture, the backside, to the very last piece of Scripture, what do we do in the middle? What's the rest of God's Word telling us to do? And we're going to look at that here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. I promise. But before we get there, just as a way of review, before we get to this section, here's what we've been studying in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. We were walking through this book, uh, an amazing book that God has given us through the Apostle Peter. Peter is teaching us what it means that God's grace covers our disgrace. That's what he did at the fall. That's what he does at the the rebuilding of the new uh, Jerusalem or the new earth, the new heavens. He is taking his grace and covering our disgrace disgrace all the ways that we have shattered his peace and grace he will ultimately restore through christ jesus and so here's what we've looked at in chapter one verses one and two we looked at the very opening the salutation of the letter who peter is writing to he's writing to the believer he's writing to you and i and then uh, the next few verses he talks about there's this hope that's coming let your hope arise in you and then over the next chapter and a half uh, for the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, we look at joyful suffering, that we will suffer as believers in this world. And then in our suffering, we must go back to remember all that God has done for us. And then we've been getting, the last few weeks, looked at our response to all that. And our response to the grace of God puts us in relationship with God. That's the last half of chapter 1. And then what we've covered the last several weeks since uh, Uh, Phil was here several weeks ago. We looked at not only does it affect our relationship with God, the grace that he pours out on us, 
but it also affects our relationship with other believers. And now, if you will, we're going to get to this point in the text. It's the pivotal moment of the book of Peter. And for me, when I take notes in my Bible, I put a triangle. It's that pivot point that everything is going to fall uh, this way for the rest of the text. He's been building us up to this moment in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, and the rest of the chapter 2, 3, 4 is going to be about, okay, the application to what he's been teaching us over the last several uh, verses and chapters. And so it's our application to uh, the first part. When we have a, a relationship with God and we have a relationship with others, what does it do for us? It's our mission statement here at the church. We are to know God and to make Him known. And so the rest of this chapter, the rest of this book, is all about our evangelism. It's all about how we're going to reach this lost world. And so these two verses, 11 and 12, are a 30,000-foot view of that. The critical point is in chapter uh, 2, verse 12, where he says, May that they, you're what? that they may see, the, the unbeliever may see your, what, good deeds, and that they would glorify God on the day of visitation. And so Peter's been moving us along in this book to this moment to say, hey, now the way that you live life in this broken world, the way that you live between the trees, it really does matter. And it doesn't just matter for you and your relationship with God. It doesn't just matter for you and your relationship with the church. Those, those two are primary first. But ultimately, it's going to flesh out on our relationship with lost people. And that's what he says. That's what uh, Michelle read to us. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among what the Gentiles, the unbeliever, honorable, so that when they, the unbelievers, speak against you, the believer, as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and what glorify God. And so Peter is stealing this verse, verse 12, from what we studied a few months ago when Jesus came on the scene and said, hey, how you live life, it does matter. We looked at that in the Sermon on the Mount. And so right before he, Jesus, gets into the rest of the text, if you remember in chapter 5, there's that moment that he said, hey, how you, ma- how you live matters, and here's how you need to live. That's what the rest of chapter 5, 6, and 7 are all about. He's saying, this is what you've heard, but this is what the truth is. But it starts with what? What he says in Matthew chapter five sixteen. He says this. See if these words sound familiar. And in the same way, what? Let your light or your life shine before others, the unbeliever, so that they, the unbeliever, may see what your good works. It's the same words that Peter just used. That your good works and what give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so, here's the punchline of it all. That the way that I live my life and the way that you live your life in relationship to the call that God's placed on in my life and then the, the relationship within us as a body of believers, the church, God's promise here is that if we live holy lives, that something will happen. You see, this isn't a command in God's Word to live, uh, to live holy lives. That is a command, but it's a promise. When I live a holy life, when you live a holy life, when we as a church live a holy life, what does the promise say? That they will, they will give glory to God. 
So my life, your life, us as a church, it matters how we live in relationship with God, ourselves, and other people. Because our ultimately desire is to see people redeemed by Jesus Christ. Amen? And so God, through Peter, is saying, hey, how you live matters. And then the next several verses, the next several chapters, he's going to talk about what that looks like on a 10-foot level when I'm on the ground. What does it look like to have submission to authority? What does it look like if I'm in a relationship, a marital relationship with an unbeliever? What does that all look like? He's going to give us practical illustrations of what it means that our lives matter, how we live between the trees matters. And so my hope for this message that you'll leave here this morning and you'll see that your life matters. And the way you live your life matters. Even things that are done that no one sees matters. But even more important, the things that the world sees matters. It's what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5. We have to ask ourselves, are we really the salt and light of the world? Do we make a difference as believers and ultimately here at Powell's Chapel? Do we make a difference here in our community? You you see, the tragedy for me would be this. If, God forbid, I've said this from this very uh, pulpit before, if something were to happen to us this morning, if by whatever means something happened to all of us simultaneously all at the same time and the people of Powell's Chapel were wiped out from the face of the planet, would our community take notice? Not because there's a burnt building, but because there's individual lives that have made such an impact on our community that no longer are we in our community making that impact. Or do we just come here week in and week out and we go back into the world and we have no eternal impact on the world? That's what we have to ask ourselves. It does matter how we live from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It matters how you live between the trees. It matters how I live. It matters ultimately how we as the church live. And Peter's going to say how we do that. And ultimately what that leads us to is that people will give glory to God. That lost people will give glory to God. Not just believers. And what he's going to talk about is conversion. And then we're going to get into the rest of the Uh, book uh, next week and then we'll take a four-week break for advent and come back at the start of the year and finish first peter so let's look at what peter has to say to us the believer the very first words in this section of uh, scripture is this the word beloved circle that in your bible you see peter's going to give them some challenging things to do and to play out in their lives and so he wants them to be reminded of who they belong to. Beloved has everything to do with their relationship with God the Father. So he's reminding them out of the gate, hey, you are still a child of God. You are beloved by the God of the universe. And the side note to that is Peter saying to his audience, hey, and I love you too. And so here the people are going to read, hey, there is a God that loves me, and because there's a God that loves me, my life matters. And then he says these words, I can hear uh, Peter, I wish I could hear Peter, but I kind of have this idea of what Peter's saying here and the angst that Peter's saying with these three words, I urge you. Man, this is a plea. 
This is, is Peter begging the people of God. I, I urge you, this matters. There's a sense of urgency for Peter in the moment that he's begging the people of God. And says, hey, love, I love you. And now I beg you, I plead with you. It just happened to me uh, in the last five minutes. I just told John this. Uh, I, normally I email myself my notes so I can get them on this iPad while uh, I had, had a brain lapse and forgot to do that. And I went to look at my notes uh, while I was sitting there and John was uh, preparing our hearts through worship. And I was like, oh no, I, I don't have notes. That's a bad thing. Either this message is going to go two and a half hours and all the food's going to get cold, or it's going to go seven and a half minutes and it's going to be a disaster. I need notes. And so this urgency came over me. I sent Jenny a quick text and I sent Jared a quick text and I just said, help. And I think that's what Peter is saying to these people, man, th this is really, really, really important. I urge you. He hadn't used this language before in the letter. And now he's saying, I beg you as the people of God. And what does he beg them? He says and reminds them of these two things. You are sojourners and you are exiles. Think of it this way, what those two words mean or this, that they're the people that are simply passing through. See, a sojourner or an exile it will never take up residence where they go. They're just passing through. And that's what Peter's saying to these people. Hey, you've got to remember that you are only a sojourner and an exile. You, you see, because if they don't remember that they're a sojourner, they're exiles, they're going to begin to take on the patterns of the world. And then they're going to begin to blend into the world. And so he's pleading with them, hey, remember, you're just a sojourner. There's other places throughout Scripture that talk about this idea. It's in Philippians, it's in, it's in Hebrews. The, the writers of Philippians and the writers of Hebrews is saying to the people of God, hey, this is not your home. This is not our home, believer, Christian. We do not take up residence here. We are citizens of another kingdom. Here's just a quick story of what that may look like for you and for me. I had a few, and uh, maybe I'll give both. The first one is this. When, when I would go on mission trips, I was just a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, I, I've been all over the world. Uh, and by God's grace and by God's, uh, I'll say goodness, I, thank God I'm tall. That's God's goodness on me. If you're short, thank God you're short. I just thank God I'm tall. And so I can go into a, na a, a neighborhood or an airport or a foreign land, and, and I stick out like a sore thumb. Like, I'm 6'2", I'm real white, I, I don't blend in. When I went to the Dominican Republic, everyone came up to, to about my waist, and I, I was like patting like grown men on the head. I'm like, man, I stick out like a sore thumb. I went to India and did the same thing. I'll bring it here, the very first time I ever went to Jenny's church, I saw, stuck out like a th sore thumb. Uh, I, I'll give a quick uh, description of what I look like. Uh, please don't hold this against me. I grew up in the city. I, I grew up uh, just um, kind of nomadic anyway, and so I came to a church much like Powell's Chapel in, in the country. Uh, probably not a house within, I don't know, 10 miles other than the parsonage. And I, I went, I walked in the front door, and I looked around, and I was like, one of these are not like the others. 
I had blonde spiky hair, I had earrings, and I had an eyebrow ring, and I wore, I didn't know, I read the sign, and it said uh, two service, 8.30 and 11. I thought, man, the 11 o'clock's got to be for the guys that are like me and wake up late and stroll into the church. No, it was the traditional service. Now, I walked in, I had a t-shirt, uh, baggy jeans, and flip-flops on. I thought, oh, this is not good. But I often think to myself, do I as a believer stand out that way in this lost world? Am I so radically different because of who I follow that I stick out? Am I really a sojourner and an exile into this world? You see, I think this, for many believers, has gotten diluted. And I don't mean just just by the way we dress. I think there is modesty in the way we dress that we ought to stick out in the world. I hope when Tennyson is in high school, she will stick out in her high school because of the way she dressed. She will dress modestly in in a world that says, don't dress modestly. I think that, I hope that's just one way. I hope the way that I engage through conversation and the language that comes out of my mouth is being set apart. I hope that the entertainment that I see as a believer, if people will take notice, like, you haven't seen that movie? I haven't seen that movie. And not as a way of righteousness and holiness and a greater of thou, but a way of humility and righteousness and holiness. That God has called me and God has called you to a different standard than the world holds us to. And so for us, are we sojourners and are we exiles in this world? Because we are not of this world. We are of a kingdom way bigger than this world. And so that's what we first have to say. Do we believe that God has placed us here as sojourners in a lost world? He goes on and says this. He gives us two things. He's going to lay out these two things for the rest of chapter 2, 3, and 4. He uses these two words. One's a negative and one's a positive. The negative is this. He says, beloved, children of God, sojourners, you don't live in this world. He says, abstain from passions of the flesh. That's the negative. He's calling us, hey, there's got to be things that we stay away from. And what are the things that we stay away from? The things that we stay away from are those things that pleasure our flesh. And we've looked at that in length through the rest of the text. And it's just not sexual immorality. That's not what the passions of the flesh means. He's saying anything that gives us gratitude for other than God. If my ultimate goal is blank, other than God, that's a pleasure of the flesh. That is a desire of the flesh. And he's saying to us, hey, we, the exiles, the sojourners in this world, we must abstain from these things. And when we begin to abstain from these things, that's what gives us a a, a light into a lost world. I'm not saying to us, church, to get rid of our cable, to get rid of our internet, to get rid of anything that the, the world also does and live in a bubble. I'm not saying that at all. I'll get to that in a moment. But we have to ask ourselves, are those things that I just listed robbing us from our affections to the Lord Jesus? And if they are, are we willing to abstain from them? 
You, you see, in and of itself, alcohol is not a bad thing, but when alcohol enters into my system as an alcoholic, it's a terrible thing, and therefore I have to abstain from it. And I'm just asking us to begin to ask the questions, the things and the pleasures that I take in, are they robbing me of being a witness to the world? And if I could answer, yes, they're robbing me to be a witness, then I've got to ask the grace of God, hey God, will you help me walk in step with you and remove the pleasures of this world from my life so that I can be a greater witness to you? And so again, I'm not saying, hey, all those things that I've listed are bad and get rid of them. There are sects of um, Christianity that would say to us, hey man, no more pants for ladies, you can only wear dresses. There are those radical people that say that. That's not what I believe. I'm just simply saying, am I willing to ask the question, are you, the believer, willing to ask the question, am I willing to get rid of things in my life to be a greater witness for Christ? And I would say this, anything that you're not willing to get rid of, you probably need to get rid of. Because that would be an idol. If I'm not willing, I'm not saying I'll do it, but am I willing to let go of my job to be a a, a greater witness? Am I willing to do that? God cares about our willingness. We we see the Pharisees, they they were um, obedient to the core, but they had no willingness in them. So he tells us to abstain from the things of the world. And this is the reason we abstain from the things of the world. He says in verse 11, which what? Wage war against your soul. That word wage war means a battle is going on inside of you in this very moment. A war is taking place in you. That's what Paul tells us. Hey, we we don't fight a earthly battle. We fight a spiritual battle. Do we believe that this morning? And when I and you begin to allow the pleasures of the world to come into my life and I don't abstain from those, there is a great war that's going on internally in me in that very moment. And he's saying to us, hey, when we enter into the world and we begin to partake, there is a war that's going to happen in us. And I promise you this, without uh, the lordship of Jesus Christ and our surrender to him, Satan will always win the battle internally in you. Which means we have to go back to what Peter's been telling us in the first chapter and a half. Do you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus? If you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, even when the fleshly things enter into your life, you have the Holy Spirit in you and in your surrender and your confession to Him. He removes and has already won the battle. But He's asking us as sojourners and pleading with us as sojourners to abstain from the things that take war in our lives. The next thing that he says to us in verse 12. So abstain is the first one. The second one is the positive. Uh, Circle the word abstain in your Bible. Now circle the word keep in your Bible. Verse 12 starts with that word. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. What? Honorable. So he's saying to us, it's the idea, old, uh, old theologian said it this way, there's things in our life that we must mortify. There's things in my life and in your life that we must mortify. The word mortification means to put to death. So there's things I've got to abstain from, I've got to put to death in my life. And now Peter's going to say, the, op, the, the flip side of that is, there's things that I must put into practice in my life. I must have what the, the theologian calls vivification. The word vivify just simply means life. 
Am I going to keep the things in my life that, that give me life uh, in my life, is what Peter's saying. And we've looked at that through 1 Peter. So we don't have time this morning to go back through that. We looked at it last week. What does my prayer life look like? What does my daily routine with the Lord look like? What, what does confession look like? What does all the things of the fruit of the Spirit look like in my life? That's how I'll keep my life, your life. The church will keep their lives in a holy conduct or an honorable conduct. Many theologians say this, that we would live lives that are in such a, above reproach that people, even when they accuse us, it's what Peter says here. There can be no accusation, true accusation against you and me as a believer if I'm keeping with the honorable conduct that the, that the God of the universe has set, set me to. Read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You want to know how to live a godly life? Pattern your life after the greatest sermon that's ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. You will live a life above reproach. And so he says to us, live a life above reproach. Live a life that is honorable. We're going to get to this in a moment so that when they, the unbelievers, speak against you as evildoers, they, they will begin to speak against you and see your good deeds and glorify God. Just three quick things before we move on to the end of the passage. Here's three things that this passage tells us. Where I was saying just a moment ago that God has not called us to live in a bubble. The first thing that we see, uh, Peter believes wholeheartedly that we are to live in this world. That's what it means to be sojourners and exiles, that God has put us to live here. We have to live in the world. We cannot escape the world. There is a purpose for you to live in the world. And so we are not to live in a bubble. We are to live in this world. The second thing that we see as we live in this world will be what he says to us. When they bring accusation against us, there will be hardship for you and I as believers. It doesn't matter how holy you live your life, there will be hardship. Amen? I mean, the hardship of my life tripled when I came to know Christ. How come? Because the, the war had already been won in my heart. Satan was already leading me wherever I wanted. He, there was no, I was no threat to him and his kingdom. The moment I, I surrendered my will and my life over to Christ Jesus as the Lord of my life, man, I was getting hit in every direction to go back to the patterns that were keeping me from walking with the Lord. There will be hardship. That's what Jesus says uh, when he's given the parable. He says, hey, before you ever come to know me, take the cost, count the cost. It's going to be difficult. The Christian life is going to be difficult. The Christian life, let me put it this way, is going to be impossible. For you and I to live out the Christian life in and of ourselves is impossible. It will never happen. We need the power of God to live and reign in us so that we are ready to go into battle every moment we step out of these doors in the safety of your own home. There will be hardship, Christian. If you've come to Christ and you think there will be no hardship, uh, I just want to debunk that right out of the gates. It will be hard. The Christian life is impossible. And the last thing that says, Peter says to us in this passage is this. We are to live, uh, the word honorable there means uh, beautiful lives. I love that translation. We are to live beautiful lives. 
Now, I think of that when I think of beauty, whether it's uh, the setting of the sun or the mountains or the beach or just beautiful artwork, whatever comes into your head that you think, when you think of beauty, what is that for you? And that's what God is saying to us. Our lives ought to be that. We ought to be in a world that we are so beautiful people take notice. Like when you walk past a, a beautiful, for me at least, a, a beautiful flower or something that grabs my attention, I, I sit in amazement of it. And my hope is, and my hope for you is, and my hope ultimately for us as a church, that when people are passing us by, they stop for just a moment and admire the beauty that is in us. It's not our beauty, but it's what Christ is doing in us because we are living honorable lives. Our people taking notice of you and me in this church of how we're living between the trees. I'm not saying they stop because of you. I'm saying they stop because of the Lord Jesus in you, the beauty that's in you. Here's what one writer had to say. He says this, the Christian life is not a passive life. You see, to live a beautiful life, you cannot be passive. To, to live in a world uh, that ultimately is every moment of the day coming against us, we cannot be passive. And there will be hardship. And if there's hardship, we cannot be passive. We must take a stand. I think we're in the mess that we're in, in the world today, is because many believers have become passive. You see, passivity is easy. You see, if I'm passive and you're passive, there's not going to be much hardship. I can blend into the world. And ultimately, I can be passive in the Christian life and Ultimately, Christ has died for me, and ultimately I'm getting into heaven. But that's not the vision that Christ had when he hung on the cross for you, that he would hang in an unpassive way to give you permission to live a passive life. The cross is not for your passivity. The cross is for our raging war against a lost world. That's what the cross is for. Let us, Powell's Chapel, not live passive lives any longer. So that what will end with this this morning. We are not going to live passive lives between the trees so that what when they, the unbeliever, speaks against you, and it's going to happen, the unbeliever will speak against you, that what ultimately happens, it says that they will see your good deeds and glorify God. My hope and my prayer is that as we move into the rest of of this chapter, that we will not live passive lives, that we will live godly lives that are drawing a lost world to hear the great love story that Christ has given to us through his life and death and resurrection on the cross. And when they begin to hear that, they will ask more and more questions, and then they, through their repentance to the Lord Jesus, will glorify God. Theologians are in debate about both these, so uh, I'm just going to go with both of what the theologians say. W one sect of theologians says this way, that this word, uh, the day of visitation, means on the day of judgment. That on the day of judgment, that, that every person on the planet will glorify God. That is a true statement. But I think there's a backside to what this word means, that the word day of visitation means that the day that Christ comes and visits them, he, he, they will be redeemed, and in the redeeming, they will give glory to God. 
And is it true for us that we will live unpassive lives so that a lost world will see Christ in us and because they see Christ in us, they will ask questions and surrender their will and their life to a God much bigger than you and much bigger than me. And they will ultimately give glory to God and then get on mission with us, the church, to continue to do that throughout the world. One writer says this, and I'll close with this. St. Francis of Assisi said it this way. He said, proclaim the gospel wherever you go. And when needed, use words. Proclaim the gospel wherever you go. That's what Peter's talking about. And when needed, use words. Let's not be passive as we live between the trees. Let me pray for us. God, I'm so grateful for what you're doing with this book in my life. God, you've used this in my life, I believe, way more than you use this uh, to, for me to preach to your people. I pray, God, that I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, would not live a passive life. And that my life would be beautiful, God, to a lost world. God, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning that they, they could honestly say, man, I, I do not know this Jesus that you're speaking of. But oh, I want to glorify him. That this morning, God, would be the morning that they would surrender their will and their life over to your care. God, I pray if there's the believer in this room, that they would say, man, I, I've just blended into the world. I don't live life that's separate. I live a very passive life in this world. And man, my life isn't very hard because I live passively and I don't live a very beautiful life, that today through your Holy Spirit you would bring deep conviction and that we confess that to you, God. They confess those things in their life that prevent them from living fully for you. Whatever it is, God. And then God, I pray for us ultimately as a church, Powell's Chapel Baptist Church, that you would let us be a light and salt into this dark, dark community. The many people, God, because of the way that we love you and love each other, would let our good deeds shine in such a way that unbelievers are asking questions. And then through their asking questions, would surrender to you. And through sin surrendering you, they'd uh, give their glory, their ultimate glory to you, that you would get all the glory. We pray that this morning. Continue to lead us this morning. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.